And welcome back to another Mindful Muslim podcast where we discuss psychology, mental health, spirituality and Islam. I'm Zahra from Inspirited Minds and today I have with me brother Abu Tahir, the Islamic advisor for Inspirited Minds and our sister Selina, a co-founder. Welcome to the podcast guys. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. As paracetamol is often the answer to all kinds of pain, Ruqya appears to be the answer to mental pain. Today we will be discussing what Ruqya actually is what it entails and what it's used for, and why it is deemed as the ultimate answer for mental health issues. So I guess what needs to be asked first is, what are the different types of ruqya and how are they administered? Brother Abu Tahir? Well, um, if you were to look at the kind of the essence of ruqya, it could be divided into two, um, two groups. Um, we, we have ruqya shari and we have ruqya shirkiya. And if I was to elaborate, then Ruqya um, Shari'iya is basically that which conforms with the Qur'an and the Sunnah and the method that the Prophet ﷺ had administered towards us. And um, according to Ibn Hajar, he says that there's a consensus about when um, Ruqya can be used and he says that there are three conditions that need to be met. And number one is that it must be with the speech of Allah, i.e. the Qur'an, his names and his attributes or anything associating to Allah. Number two, that it must be either in the Arabic language or any language in which that translation or that certain verse is known to. And thirdly, to have that belief that Ruqya in itself has no benefit, but the benefits are from Allah. And once that is met, then there's an agreement that Ruqya can be performed. Whereas Ruqya Shirkiya is a, obviously the opposite and the contradiction to the conditions of the Ruqya Shari. And it's like we all know, it's associating partners with Allah. And in honesty, this kind of, well, if you want to even call it Ruqya, it would lead the, a person to his destruction in his life and in the next. And this kind of method only causes more calamities and sickness to the person it's been done upon. Hmm. When you talk about Ruqya Sharia, do you mean like um, Shirkiya? Do you mean that like it's when they take like amulets and stuff like that and use it as like a form of, you know, putting their faith in that? Or do you mean that there's an actual procedure that people do wrong? Well, it's both actually, because you do have a lot of statements or hadith from the Sahabas being narrated from the Prophet that um, amulets and certain kind of talismans are not permissible in yeah. Islam. And, <clears throat> and also there's the other method where people invoke um, worshipping the devil as well as um, look, believing in other things other than Allah and seeking refuge in them. So there is a bit of both, and like you said, there's not a sole way. Mm. Mm. Sister Selina? 
Um, so I guess we just mentioned that, you know, there's uh, there's two types, of course, the correct and the incorrect. Um, I just want to elaborate a little on the correct because, you know, for the viewers that are watching and wondering, um, you know, by what methodology they should um, go by or what to do. Um, I think I think uh, the bottom line is that, um, uh, you know, Rukia has its place. Um, and it's something that is um, attainable and permissible to do. But even within the correct method, there's there's two types, which I think is important to mention. So there's rukia through um, external aid, um, <clears throat> and then there's rukia where you can aid yourself. Um, and I think uh, the bottom line is that uh, you know rukia, um, it, it can be used as a means to uh, you know to help one um, in their situation but um, self-rukia is something that can't be ignored it's a form of protection because prevention is better than cure and um, when the issue is that uh, it is too late to prevent um, the aim is to become self-sufficient enough to pick yourself up um, at all costs especially for patients dealing with uh, their situation on a long-term basis Um, I don't know if you want me to elaborate more on that no, that's fantastic. Just like what is the what would you guys say is the difference between sihr and actual possession? Um, the difference between sihr and actual possession is that sihr entails a vast number of methods and effects, and jinn possession is only a part of those methods that are used to perform sihr. And one thing which is common is that a lot of people believe that if someone is possessed, that means that someone has done black magic on them and or it's sihr, but it's not. That's not always the case. Jinn position and black magic are not the same. Yeah, people do use jinns to perform black magic, but not every position is a case of sihir. And there is no hard and fast rule as to why or how jinns possess humans. And the cases may differ from one another. But to mention a few, it could be that it could start from the jinn being a bad jinn, wanting to wrongfully harm humans. For no purpose at all, just as we have foolish humans that do the same. Mm. It could be that, and it has happened in some cases, that the jinn falls for a human and desires him or her. So they tend to possess them. And it could be sometimes that the person actually does distract or disturb the jinn. And as a consequence, the jinn wants to get its revenge by um, dealing with them accordingly. And then we have the common one, which is witchcraft and sorcery, which a lot of people use jinns to manipulate them in inflicting harm on people, especially as we have that in our Asian community. And, and Moroccan as well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so I was I was just going to say that. Um, uh, uh, so just to follow off off from the point that Brother Abu Tahir made, is that um, to simplify things, sihr is black magic, um, but it can also come with possession, um, uh, but it can also be done without it. For example, sihr of marriage is usually sent with jinns to disrupt a couple's relationship, whereas th- then there are some other types of sihr which you. Uh, you know, which don't have to be carried out through jinn work. But I think, you know, the most important thing to learn about, uh, as opposed to, you know, these sort of getting into these nitty-gritties, is how to ca- counter these issues as a patient. And um, it's what we just mentioned before. So, uh, you know, one of the means we can use is rukia and, um, you know, self-rukia as well. 
Yeah, but it's also important to know the distinctions so that you can tell when it's mental health issues versus, you know, possession issues or separate issues. Um, so that's my next question is, can there be any major distinction between mental health issues and gin-related issues? Um, so sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, when a patient is suffering from full possession, it may be quite easy to identify, especially if he or she reacts with verses from the Quran, the Adhan. Other times patients don't. So, um, and these are usually long-term patients who are suffering from, you know, black magic or sihr. So, um, when, so where most times it may be difficult to differentiate, it's important to have a very balanced approach between both means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has provided for us it's a it's really a case case by case matter i personally don't think that we can um tell every individual to go in through this means first and then the other or even both at the same time um, at times it's very obvious what the issue is at times it isn't so what's pivotal to mention to sufferers is that yes jinn possession and black magic exist just as much as mental health illnesses exist it, they both existed 1400 years ago during the time of the prophet sallallahu and they exist now so have a very balanced approach and do not disregard either where the matter isn't clear I think this advice is more fitting for um, jinn or black magic sufferers who have suffered on a more long-term basis but bottom line is they both exist and um, the answer is kind of yes and no it's just very it's a case-by-case -case study really hmm. brother Abitahi what's your opinion on this yeah, um, I, I do agree with Sister Selena that um, it is a case-by-case -case, um, situation. Um, I find that um, a lot of the times, the more you look into gen position and mental illness, they, are, they kind of intertwine, and it could be that one is experiencing Definitely, both yeah. at the same time, mm. and, you, and you wouldn't even actually notice it, because... Um, it's just like, for example, a lot of people, they, because of the cultural norm or the kind of taboo that people have around mental illness, they tend to jump towards the um, fact that it could be gene possession. And there have been many cases in which a lot of people have diagnosed themselves with black magic or gene possession and try to carry out self-healing practices, whereas their mental um, case or mental illness um, worse and uh, seem to get worse to the extent that some people have pushed it too far that they can't go or turn back from it so it's what sister selena said there needs to be a balanced um view on the cases but in reality you can't really distinguish the um you can't make a distinction and i think one of the cases that i would use i find very interesting is the the shell shock event that happened in world war one where even not even muslim but even in other um, areas you find that mental illness was disregarded and it was seemed to be a fear or cowardice of the soldiers that didn't want to go want to go into battle but that was not the case it was a genuine mental illness and many people were um, kind of um, executed on that basis that they were fe fearing to go out whereas hysteria and um, distress and anxiety did overcome these people so it's not only with our Asian community but it's been a problem since the very beginning and it's only recently that it's come to be acknowledged and people are aware of this case or, dis or differentiating between health mental health and gene possession 
I think I think just to follow up, follow up from that point very quickly is that um, what can help with having a, a balanced approach is to go to you know both experts in these in in both fields. If you're really confused about your your situation, go don't disregard either. Go to both um, you know go to both uh, experts in in both in, in these individual and respected fields, and um, to to get a diagnosis and and take it from there. So if you go to Iraqi and you you get diagnosis, okay, fine. Um, uh, accept the help um, till the point of um, to the to the point where you're able to help yourself um, as well and employ self rukia and um, don't disregard the, the mental the, the mental health aspect as well. Um, it's it's very important. Like Brother Abu Tahir said, sometimes these situations can be it's very intertwined and you can be suffering from both at the same time. So um, self sufficiency in this area and this regard is very important and having a balanced approach in doing so. That's what I was going to say. It makes it seem as if like you, you can either have one or the other, whereas you can benefit from both. So Definitely. it's good to go to both. And also, like you can mention that, you know, you don't just have to go to one Raqqa. You can go to a few to get different opinions because sometimes the person you're going to might not be fully qualified, etc. Because so, I've heard so many cases of people going to like a certain person in their community who has been, you know, given this certain mm. position and sometimes it's not necessarily that they're the be all end all of like yeah definitely definitely best to do a background research on the person before yeah. you go to Iraqi um, and that's why you know self rukia you know helping yourself is also um, very important i mean the, the the aim is to go to someone to read read quran on you which you can also do on yourself but to to get a diagnosis and to you know to, for this person to help you up till a point where you're able to help yourself as well um, especially for long term sufferers this is what you have to do ask any patient no one is going to push you as much as you're going to push yourself and no one is going to recite on you as much as you can recite on yourself so, yeah, definitely self-sufficiency is very important and it's something the Prophet ﷺ always, you know, made da'a for too. Yeah. So why do you think um, Ruqiyah is often given as the remedy to mental health symptoms? Um, the reason why Ruqiyah is often kind of taken as the uh, main source of cure, if you would like to say, is it goes all back to the cultural norm and the kind of influence that's been having or people have brought back from their country um, it's going back to the gene and possession issue that even though we know that there is a certain extent to which a gene can affect a person but it's not as many as people would think it is because if you were to see those people who are possessed, they do sometimes have mental illness as well. Whereas if you look at the statistics of mental illness, I think um, the studies have shown that one in four people, that is nearly a quarter of the world's population, will at some point in their life experience some kind of mental health problem, commonly being anxiety or depression. But many of these, due to social norms or cultural impact, get interpreted as gene-related cases but are in essence related to the real a real mental health illness but it's probably out of negative stigma taboo or even lack of knowledge that a lot of people don't tend to acknowledge mental illness hence the the kind of tendency is there to tend towards ruqya and then what seems to happen is People might say, okay, the Rukhya is not working. It might be a very strong gene. We have to get very, so many people to do it. 
and I think uh, like I think this would be a good time to relate one case that I came across. Obviously, I won't mention the person name, but I would address her as Mrs. B. So one case was that Mrs. B. She's a she was a happily married woman with two children, and she was her average Muslim Bangladeshi woman who followed and was very proud of her Bangladeshi heritage. And I think in the summer they went to Bangladesh. Two weeks later, they came back and Mrs. B started to feel unwell, light-headed and couldn't eat or drink properly. Automatically, her husband and her parents concluded that, no, it's an evil eye or it was sihr that was done to her while she was in Bangladesh. So they called Iraqi and went through a process of trying to rid her of that black magic. But the Rukia wasn't working. Suddenly, when things got worse, Mrs. B collapsed and started to have a seizure and was frothing from her mouth. And when they rushed her to A&E, and that's the problem, when we see a physical side to it, we take them to the A&E and not before then. So they take her to the A&E and they did, only to discover that she's got a head trauma. And it was through the medication, slowly, slowly, that she slightly recovered. But you can see that yeah, so it, it, these cases are real and you see that people do tend to give a negligence towards mental illness because it's not apparent and the custom is there that, okay, something is abnormal, let's challenge it with that which you know, which is, um, okay, it's a gene. Mm. There is this reluctance to learn more about mental health illnesses. I mean, just working in, you know, all of us working in this organisation, we, we know how difficult it is to raise awareness about it and get people to actually speak about it. Um, for me, it's, you know, it's very simple and it's, 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 it's easier to understand that the speech of Allah is incomparable and, you know, it, it's what people are familiar with and they know. Um, and it is healing and it works. It relieves stress and anxiety. But I think what we need to start teaching and what people need to be open to learning about is that Allah has provided other means and um, just as he's provided means from deen he's also provided means um, from dunya which we, which we can take and um, by this I mean um, you know just the whole approach to mental health illnesses um, going to the doctors getting a diagnosis um, taking medication if necessary and so on and so forth so what do you guys think is the ideal approach to these matters Personally, I'd say it's probably quite holistic. What do you guys think? Would you agree? Definitely. I think, um, defi I definitely agree it's a holistic. Again, there has to be a balanced approach. But first and foremost, we have to disengage ourselves from, a cult from all cultural approaches and seek knowledge, understand what the correct methods towards Rokia is, if this is the means that you're taking. So we're able to differentiate between what's haram, what's shirk, and, um, you know, so this is easily identifiable to us. Um, and it's, piv it's pivotal, um, as we know, be because what's impermissible can make your situation much much more worse um, if you are employing Rukia then employ self Rukia um, definitely this cannot be dismissed um, and as we mentioned one of the qualities that the Prophet used to make the for is self-sufficiency um, asking for help is fine and necessary and there's nothing unislamic about it but again nobody is going to encourage you in your path towards healing as much as um, you are so you know if the, again the, the topic of Rukia itself is so huge and then the topic of mental health is so huge um, and this can't be dismissed also so um, um, I think what breaks the barriers down when it comes to mental health illnesses is that um, you have to keep talking about it, you have to keep educating you, um, people about it and um, yeah you you have to also um, with with speech comes action and you have to go and do the right thing. Mm. Abu Tahir? Well 
It's like what you guys have been saying. Um, it's the fact that because gen possession or black magic and mental illness have very similar symptoms, it's, it's the, it, this is the very reason why there shouldn't be a need to choose between medical treatment and ruqya. Rather, they should come together. So mental health professionals should be aware of the cultural and religious beliefs adopted by their patients and realize that there is a need for them to collaborate with imams or scholars in order to produce a, like you said, a more holistic mental health care, which incorporates biological, psychological and spiritual factors. And whilst mental health professionals can teach imams to recognize mental illness, Islamic religious scholars can in turn educate health professionals about the importance of religious factors in a kind of psych psychiatric disorder. Because at the end of the day, both parties working together is only going to make it better than, you know, than anything. And I think secondly, Muslim leaders have a vital role in shaping the views of the British Muslim communities and you know and their knowledge of mental Definitely health yeah. I think their knowledge of mental health with a mixture of components such as you know Islam culture and what society thinks will play a massive factor because at the end of the day Muslim communities tend to believe that Imams are their mental health experts even though many may disagree but them Imams having that platform gives them the opportunity to address the community regarding mental health in Islam and bring around the awareness to educate the wider society. Uh, what I'm understanding is that you're saying it's a it's a combination of both. Um, so how do you, final question guys, how do we break down the taboos around receiving ruqya and counselling? Bearing in mind that they're both Islamic, but why is it that counselling is frowned upon? Uh, do you mind elaborating on the question? Sorry. So I think that both ruqya and counselling, um, you know, are remedies, as we said, that they're both, you know, they can be combined together to give like a more, the best treatment that course, a person yeah. can receive. Um, so, and they're not against Islam at all. Both of them are Islamic. But why is it that we see ruqya as Islamic and we don't see counselling as something that should be yeah. done. So again, I think it just goes back to the idea that, um, you know, mental health um, illness is, is a huge taboo in our community, culturally and societally as well. It's something that's completely all, and always brushed under the carpet and it, it definitely needs to be talked about more, um, which is why, you know, um, which is why the stigmas attached to it as well. So I think the, the only way um, or one of the best ways is to, comp you know, educate. There's nothing like education. It breaks down barriers. It raises confidence to do the right thing. Um, but you but with every word, there is an action due. So when we know what the right thing is to do, we have to go ahead and do it. And this will raise discussions whether people agree with you or not. And it will also um, you know, influence other people um, around you. I think um, why Rokia is, you know, seems to be more acceptable than counselling is because, is because it's, it's what's familiar to people culturally too. You know, they, it's, it's something that has been practised. Whether they wrongly practised, it's been practised. Um, whereas counselling hasn't. Um, people, you know, they, they, uh, they, lack, they lack knowledge Islamically um, to, you know, there have, there have been... Um, cases where you know the prophet sallallahu spoke to um well i i personally i know one case where the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam he and maybe abu tahir um can um elaborate on this um but he, there was a mentally um, ill woman who you know came up to him and um he dealt with the matter very kindly and you know he he spoke to her until she was done and you know this is a form of counseling as well just listening to a person um you know allowing them to vent allowing them to speak and um 
you're just just being present and um, if people knew more about this and how to approach it then I think you know it would be more acceptable um, but there's lack of knowledge there's lack of knowledge in the mental health aspect and then there's lack of knowledge Islamically too so um, this causes uh, issues and taboos you're totally right. I think as well that counselling and psychology in general is very young. It's a very young Definitely, field yeah. and it's not being adopted much by our communities yet. So it's slowly getting in and understanding because a lot of what you said, you know, a lot of people just think that it's just talking to family. Why do you need to go to a professional when you've got family, when you've got, you know, community? And um, I think a lot of that's been breaking down in our community. People are not necessarily talking to each other about, as you said, the Prophet was doing a natural counselling, if I, I put uh, in, in a way, do you see what I mean? And it's not necessarily, our communities have changed. We've moved to other countries. We're, we're experiencing different lives. It's not like we're as tight-knit as we were. So people aren't necessarily getting those natural benefits. And then they're turning to religious, religious reasons without knowledge, as you said, and overlooking, you know, things that they don't know anything about. Abu Tahir, have anything to say about this? Yeah, so um, the um, how to break down the taboos was when... Um, Organizations such as Inspirited Mind and other mental health bodies, that's where they come in. The fact that um, Inspirited Mind is targeting the taboo area that a lot of Asians have with regards to mental health is a great. And then you have other mental health bodies which are focusing on another aspect of the community. These organizations coming together and collaborating what they know can give us a broader understanding of mental health in different settings. Also, um, because um, the stigma about mental health is deeply rooted in the Asian community, to uproot that will take a lot of effort, time, dedication and trust. Therefore, I think it's a good idea to get the local masjid involved. Um, I think you've kind of mentioned this in your answers before, but you said working together with like our sheikhs and imams and like as well with organisations. Do you think that that would be, you know, a way to combat? Yeah, I th- yeah, I think having even just having the local masjid because people, whether the masjid is you know um, culturally run or not, people tend to go for a safe haven when it comes to the masjid, and so if we were to get the masjid involved and have the programs there, because the environment itself has an impact. So if the masjid can be used as kind of a base where workshops about. Um, what do you call it, mental health and the comparison, or just to make an awareness that there is something called mental health or depression or anxiety out there. And you can, because the masjid is kind of like the hub for a lot of Muslims, you can advertise um, a kind of support that's available. So those people who are actually in hiding from their mental health will know that there is support out there for them. It is a challenging and long project, but I think the reward is endless, inshallah. So I think the key that we all agree on is to discuss more, to, to share with others. And uh, to conclude from that, Jazakallah khairan for listening in, guys. And don't forget to share with family and friends. And let us know your thoughts in the discussion below on the website. If you have any ideas for future podcasts or would like to share your story, you can visit us on social media, all of it's at Inspirited Minds, or you can email info at inspiritedminds.org.uk. On behalf of Inspirited Minds, may Allah keep us all safe and upon the right path. Amen. Wassalamu alaikum. Guide me all the way to your journey Yeah, Allah, yeah, Allah Don't let me go astray cause I need you by my side I wish to be the Lord